The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Howdy, hey, listenerinos, and welcome to another episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Now, it's been a while since we interviewed one of our many Paces success stories, and this week we welcome Dr. Tim Nye, an ACCS trainee who I mentioned a couple of episodes ago after he got in touch with the show. Tim's Paces preparation was slightly different to that which most of you listening will have experienced or currently be experiencing. Essentially, the odds were not stacked in his favour in a number of ways, and Tim talks us through how he overcame multiple obstacles on the way to passing his paces. And then he paid it forward by donating to the show on the Buy Me A Coffee page. And speaking of the Buy Me A Coffee page, I honestly don't believe the generosity of you guys. Thank you to Joe P, who recently passed, as well as Sophie and Krista, who mentioned they passed first time. And lastly, to Amy, who said she listened to the Retinitis Pigmentosa episode on the way to the exam and what came up bloody retinitis pigmentosa and of course she passed as well massive congratulations to you all thank you for your generosity but enough on that for now let's get into this week's episode Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. My name is Dr. Sam Williams, and you might remember from the podcast intro to the lung surgery episode, I thanked one specific listener for following up his generous Buy Me A Coffee donation with an email detailing some of the difficulties he had approached during his Paces preparation. However, I'm delighted to say he overcame these difficulties. Not only did he pass his Paces, but he's one of the select group to get full marks in the exam. His name is Dr. Tim Nye, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast today. So, Tim, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sam. And Tim, maybe if you could just introduce yourself. What's your grade? What's your current role? And you can disclose your location uh, if you want. But uh, give us a bit of uh, detail about Tim. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a CT1 um, uh, ACCS trainee with anaesthetics as my kind of parent specialty. Um, and I'm working in the east of England. 
so as of the start of February, I've been doing my ED six months, um, but I started the year and started my CT1 on uh, medical placement. The way that my hospital does it is that medical placement sort of looks like a half, a sort of hybrid gastro and gen med ward in the daytime with the on-calls doing the usual kind of ward cover and take stuff. And I sat paces at the start of Feb. So um, I, uh, you know, just right at the end, just as I was about to move to ED. So kind of had all of the six months of medicine just just behind me. Amazing. And there's a few points which made Tim's story stand out slightly more uh, to me than maybe those of you listening who sit the exam as sort of conventional medical trainees. So there's a few things we're going to discuss through the course of this episode. One of the things Tim mentioned is that he was the only person sitting paces at this hospital. He was working in a relatively small hospital, which has its own challenges for patient uh, for listeners sitting their paces. Thirdly, he's not actually a medical trainee. He's an ACCS trainee with an anaesthetics flavour. And we're going to discuss some things which are maybe more expected in this podcast. We're going to talk a bit about exam nerves. We're going to talk about his preparation for the day itself. And we're going to talk about things which Tim would have wanted to know uh, before the day itself. So without further ado, let's get into it. So, Tim, as we've already mentioned, you're an ACCS anaesthetics trainee. So one of the main things I would say is, aside from the portfolio points associated with being uh, an ACCS trainee, what was the point in you sitting paces if you are planning on becoming an anaesthetist? I mean, I was asking myself this kind of quite a few times when I was driving along the um, along the A14, you know, on the on the fifth day off um, in, in a couple of weeks, um, trying to work out why I was doing it all. Um, I think sort of at the start of the diploma it kind of happened by accident in a way I was I sat part one um in September 2020 and I graduated in 2019 so it's kind of start of F2 you know the first time you're allowed to do it there were application points I wasn't a hundred percent set on anesthetics at that point so I kind of thought you know I'm keeping my options open there was a lot of overlap with the MSRA which I knew I was probably going to end up sitting yeah so so that just sort of happened and um then as soon as I passed that, I kind of thought, well, I can kind of, you know, I saw the value in what I was learning there. And I knew that kind of there's so much overlap. I mean, part two is almost, almost the same exam really, isn't it? And so I, I just thought, let's go straight on with it. And that was in, I sat that in March 21. So if you, you know, if you think back, if you can remember back that far, um, there wasn't a lot else to do other than sit exams really. Um, <laughs> So yeah, winter winter twenty to twenty one. I was uh, I was yeah just revising hard for um, part two, and then I think probably over that time I was I'd done a couple of medical jobs in F two, and I think I increasingly kind of saw that there wasn't really a medical specialty that had my name on it. But at the same time, I was kind of seeing that the medical regs that I was working with and kind of those post paces sort of IMT twos, I was just really. I was kind of really impressed with sort of the combination of knowledge and skills that they had um, in kind of ability to assess and manage those patients. And so I thought that would kind of be beneficial, whatever I went into. I guess the biggest reason that I kind of went through with PACES was that um, I'm hoping to dual train in, in intensive care later down the line. And if I want to be a consultant intensivist one day, I guess particularly as there's, there's quite a bit of a move in intensive care medicine at the moment towards having those non-anaesthetist intensive care consultants so coming from you know the medical backgrounds or from EM I thought it's quite important to have kind of a decent level of of knowledge about the medical conditions that that we'd be seeing in your average intensive care unit 
um, and, you know, be able to sort of relate to those colleagues that I'll be working with. I guess one more thing just to say kind of from a purely anaesthetic perspective as well. The caveat here being that I haven't actually, you know, done a single anaesthetic yet that comes in August. Um, but, but my understanding is that there are kind of these increasing moves in anaesthetics towards um, anaesthetists being the perioperative physician and, and the specialty kind of being a, a perioperative care specialty rather than just sort of you rock up, say hello to the patient, put them to sleep and then wake them up and that's your job done. There's kind of much more of this push towards anaesthetists being involved, particularly with the more complex patients, right from the moment that, that surgery is kind of contemplated through until full recovery. And um, that's going to include the management perioperatively of, you know, a lot of those existing comorbidities that they have. Um, and, you know, that can't be a bad thing for me to kind of understand, you know, uh, from paces and from all the work that I've done towards the MRCP, you know, those conditions and, and how we can best optimise them in that context. Yeah, really interesting. And I guess the other thing, which is, sort of flies under the radar, and, and this may have played into your thinking, may not have, but it would certainly play into mine, is that if you sunk nearly, I don't, I can't remember how much part one and part two combined are, but it must be about £900, is that you don't get anything for saying, oh, I've done MRCP part one and part two, but you do have, you obviously do get the postnomials if you get the full diploma. So I don't know if that was part of it, but it was certainly playing to my thinking is that I've sat part one and part two, one last exam to go, albeit a more expensive exam. But you get the full diploma at the end of it, and, and it's an internationally recognised qualification. So I don't know how much that played into your, thought, into your thoughts, Tim, but it would certainly play into mine. Yeah, I think so. I think I kind of realised when I was sort of maybe just after I'd applied for PACES, because, you know, the, the way that it works is that you get six weeks notice of your actual exam, or six weeks notice to the start of the window, I should say, but my date was right at the start of the window. So I really only had kind of six, seven weeks um, prep. And uh, I um, I kind of was like, oh, I should have quit while I was ahead and stopped after part one, because actually all of the scoring matrices for kind of the, the higher specialty, you get a point for part one, but then it's a lot more generous if you completed the full diploma. And part two was actually absolutely nothing. And so kind of having this short prep time and staring the exam, you know, in the face, I was quite like, oh, was it was it all worth it? Um, and so I think once I'd done part two, I thought, actually, I really, really want to follow, you know, follow on with the with the rest of it to kind of to exactly as you say, you know, to be able to get that full diploma and kind of have something to show for it. So moving on from there. Tim, what do you think you've learned from the process of sitting paces that you maybe wouldn't have appreciated if you just carried on with your ACCS in anaesthetics without sitting the exam? I'd say, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound kind of too nerdy, but I would say that paces was the first exam um, that I've ever actually enjoyed preparing for. Um, the only exam that I've ever enjoyed preparing for. Um, and definitely feel that kind of my practice has benefited, that I've become a better doctor through the process. You know, I've gathered knowledge and obviously we do when we when we revise for paces. And I, you know, I'm realistic that a lot of that is going to go with time. There's going to be a lot of how anesthetic machines work um, going into fill my headspace. I mean, I'm probably not going to remember in five, ten years time, you know, what chromosome the mutations for tubular sclerosis are on. Um, but I'm thinking what, you know, what I hope that I might remember a little bit more is kind of the broad brush stuff, you know, how how we work up a patient with cardiac valvular disease. Um, you know, the investigations for chronic liver disease, you know, those more common things. I'm really hoping that they'll kind of stick around. And I think, 
just the biggest benefit really has been those kind of those basic skills, you know, taking a history, examining a patient, the clinical reasoning, you know, how to do a neuro exam properly and elicit the signs. And, you know, station five, helping you to get to the point, um, you know, in, in a few minutes. Um, I think I'm finding those skills already super useful kind of in the ED. And then hopefully, you know, in anaesthetics, when you've got a few minutes to pre-op assess a patient um, and intensive care, you know, to come and assess somebody possibly for admission. I'm just hoping that all that will be quite useful. And I think the flip side is now that I've passed, I also kind of feel like I need to kind of work to that standard, which I think can only be a good thing. So we've got a really supportive ED in our hospital and, and, and our consultants encourage us to, you know, review patients properly and get management running before, you know, before we refer, you know, knowing what you think is wrong with them already. And I think having having got over the paces hurdle, I'm, I'm really mindful to make sure that I'm doing that and, you know, going to the med regs saying, you know, here's what I think is wrong. Here are the things that I've done so that actually if they've got, you know, a super busy take list, they know that actually I am looking after the patient and doing what needs to be done until they actually get around to see them. I can hear uh, Medredges all around the Suffolk region taking a sigh of relief, knowing that you're going to be uh, starting the management in the uh, ED, Tim. So, Tim, one of the things the uh, long-time listeners to this podcast will know is that one of the bits of advice we've given on this podcast in previous episodes is getting a group of people to revise with. So from your email, it didn't sound like you exactly had that luxury. So how did you manage being the only person in your hospital to be sitting paces? So yeah, we're in, we're kind of a a small to medium DGH. And so, you know, we don't have stacks of people sitting paces at at any one time. And and also people, because that we're often on a rotation with, with tertiary centres, people often, you know, defer sitting paces until they're kind of in there, in the tertiary centre. But even, you know, despite kind of being a small hospital, we do, we do have a paces teaching programme. Um, which is kind of uh, facilitated, I guess, by our associate college tutors um, who do a really good job at that. And, you know, a few kind consultants kind of giving up their time, sort of got one one or two in each specialty who um, who give up their time to, um, to do that. So that's really helpful. So I got a few sessions in with some consultants, some of whom were kind of either current or former PACES examiners. So that was kind of as, as close to a mock exam as I got. It was really useful. Um, had one or two really, um, really kind uh, colleagues uh, who, who are hoping to sit paces in future diets, um, kind of just coming around with me, mock examining me as well. So, you know, not on not on kind of a regular basis, um, like a like a revision buddy kind of would be, but just, you know, ad hoc when they were free. And actually, that was really, really helpful and, and good of them. Uh, we had a WhatsApp group just to sort of flag cases to each other you know interesting people who come through and then we'd you know I'd say or oh, message me on kind of the the messaging app um, and they'd then send the details over there so that I could actually go and find the patient and and ask them if I could practice on them I guess in practice you know being the only candidate it did require quite a bit of you know motivation quite a bit of kind of giving up some zero days and some days of annual leave. Um, and I'd saved some annual leave for January because I knew that I'd be preparing. Um, and I think just because of, I didn't know actually what there was available in the way of kind of study leave to prepare, but it's not a mandatory exam for me. So I kind of just expected that I was going to have to give up some annual leave for that. Um, and, and you know, just came in on, on those days off to practice um, and kind of needing to do that without a colleague to sort of hold me accountable and say, hey, mate, where are you? I guess another thing that was that was quite useful was um, practicing the communication stations. 
And I'd really, I'd point everybody towards the um, MRCP website. Um, there are so many, particularly station two, four and five, there are so many um, example scenarios on, on the website, uh, which are, they're really good because they come with not only sort of the brief for you as the candidate, but then the brief for the patient, then afterwards kind of some examiner notes as well. So you can look at sort of how you did and whether you kind of considered the differentials and all that sort of thing. Um, and you can practice these with a colleague and that's quite helpful because then they can vie for you afterwards. Um, but you know, also non-medical friend, family member or a partner, you know, the briefs are super accessible. So my wife loved acting at university. She was in loads of plays. And so actually she had a great time um, kind of dusting off the angry patient and um, doing that really well. And that was just really, really helpful kind of on the, you know, in the lead in in the couple of weeks before the exam and um, just to practice with her. That sounds amazing. I mean, it just goes to show that even if you haven't got people with you who are sitting the exam, there are other sources of support you can reach for registrars, consultants, family and friends, even though, as I say, you didn't have people sitting with you, you had enough people around that you were getting in the practice to prepare effectively. So I guess the next thing, Tim, is uh, sitting as an ACCS trainee, you mentioned that you'd already rotated through uh, an acute medicine or a general internal medicine rotation but how did you find sitting as an ACCS trainee you already mentioned that you were sort of expecting your study leave or annual leave to be sacrificed because it's not a compulsory exam so what differences do you think there are between you sitting as an ACCS trainee versus the IMTs for which it is a compulsory uh, exam to complete the program? So I think my hospital was quite helpful in that way in that we, when we're on our ACCS placement, we're kind of on this exactly the same rotor as an IMT and actually are kind of treated the same. And that did afford some benefits. So um, what that looked like was kind of, we got, we got clinic time, which was quite good. I mean, you know, obviously we know that in practice that can often get quite hindered by ward staffing and, you know, it did quite a bit, but actually the way that I was kind of able to use that clinic time was that I personally went to ambulatory care, both because that was good for my kind of ACCS, you know, acute care stuff and um, seeing, seeing, being the first one to, you know, see patients in, but also kind of treating every patient I saw on, on ACU as a station five was, was really helpful. I think also, I guess because I'm an ACCS trainee, I knew that, you know, I've got six months on medicine or gym, and then that's kind of your know, general internal medicine. And then that's kind of it. I, I That was going to be my last ever medical placement. So if I didn't pass, I knew that I probably wouldn't have another ideal time to do it. And so I think that really, really focused the mind and just on those days off when I was kind of really, you know, needed some motivation to get in thinking, actually, there isn't really a reset option for me here. So it really does, you know, I really do need to do my very best to see if I can get it this time. And I think just in terms of just the rest of it is just sort of generic practice that anybody else kind of will be doing really, you know, patients in the hospital, you know, just going around, I, I went around about midday just after ward round was finished and kind of asking colleagues if they had any interesting patients, just getting a list, which after kind of a walk around all the wards would be about 10 patients maybe. And then um, just then working my way down that list. So, you know, if a patient had gone for a scan, I can always come back to them because I've got several others that I can go and see. You know, even if the patients don't have anything typical of paces and especially in neuro, you know, people had great signs that the neurologists often just weren't quite sure what it was. You know, just actually 
practicing and then just saying to the patient you know you're happy if I have a look through your notes and then just seeing you know is the neurologist what, what did they find did I find something vaguely similar to that which is quite helpful I think one other thing probably to mention as well and I'm sure they'll they'll uh, thank me for giving a, another plug on on there but um past test I think we're, it's just a, a resource that we're so lucky to have you know, obviously, as a partner of your podcast, um, you know, I, I'm not being paid uh, paid anything to say that. But um, I think it's just so like, I can't recommend it enough as a resource. You know, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have had it the same way that we do now. So what I did was I just made notes from the videos, kind of made my own textbook, essentially, and then went back through the exam videos, kind of watched them examine the patient and then present the patient kind of to the screen and then you know pausing after the questions to kind of answer them myself before the candidate did and then kind of seeing if I got vaguely near what the candidate got yeah and it also just gave me the exposure to that kind of rare pathology that I I guess may have got if I just had more time on medicine um you know if I'd sort of been an IMT2 or whatever then you know just having that extra year under your belt actually I think past test bridges that gap somewhat as well or, you know, if you're working in a tertiary centre, you might see a little bit more of that stuff. But actually, past tests just really did a great job at kind of, I guess, filling that big knowledge and, and experience gap to an extent. Yeah. So, Tim, I'll, I'll give you that 10% commission after the records. OK. <laughs> no, honestly, I, I mean, I completely agree. And obviously, part of the reason that we're partnered with past tests is exactly for uh, people like yourself, people who are sitting their paces, because I used it when I was sitting. People are continuing to use it, thousands of people all over the UK and the world. I, I firmly believe it is one of the best resources that we have, which is why I've asked them to partner with the podcast and they've continued to support us. So it's great to hear they benefited you and I've no doubt they'll continue to benefit people for a long time. So Tim, we've talked about your preparation, but I think it's about time we get towards the lead up to exam day. Now you mentioned in your email about exam nerves and we have covered exam nerves on the podcast before we've talked about stress management but what were your tools in managing the nerves first of all in leading up to the big day and then maybe on the day itself how did you manage the nerves in the first part of the day before you actually came to sit the exam I think kind of thinking about the lead up um obviously you know everybody listening to the podcast is going to know revising for paces is hard work you know you need that hard work and I think taking I, I just made sure that I tried to take a day a week off and that meant when I say off I mean not on shift and not doing paces and you know, that's kind of something that I tried to do through my degree and I've just kind of any period of study I'm just you know I try to keep that up really generally try to get take Sunday off you know just do something you enjoy and um, just try to take your mind off the exam on a regular basis so my exam was on a Sunday. Um, and so the Thursday before was kind of the last because of other work commitments and travel and everything The the Thursday was kind of my last day for real patient practice. And come Thursday morning, I just couldn't just couldn't face going to practice. Um, just I think it was just one day off too many. Um, and it felt like quite a big deal to say I'm not going to go. But I think at that stage, three days out from the exam, it was definitely the right decision, you know, with hindsight. And and I think when it comes that close to the exam, you often just have to trust your the, the, the prep that you've done so that you're actually fresh and not fatigued on the exam day itself. Um, and I think that was probably, you know, something that really helped with the kind of just with being able to get a good night's sleep and that kind of thing the night before was because actually I had just kind of slightly eased off 
um, I guess a bit like you do for a race or something, you know, just just making sure that you're not doing that big long run, you know, two days before. I think on the day itself, I guess kind of just practical stuff, really, like think about food. So my exam was at 12 noon arrival. So you're not really thinking about lunch at that stage, but actually you're going to be in there for kind of three and a half hours you know, in the centre itself. So even though I was feeling pretty rough, I was battling quite a bit of pre-exam nausea. I don't think I've ever been as nervous for an exam, actually. You know, a, a massive achievement for me was managing to get a Big Mac, not the whole meal, just the, just the sandwich, just to kind of get that down. Just even with that, you know, it was hard work, but actually I was starving after the exam finished. And so if I hadn't managed that, I think it would have been quite an issue if I'd not you know, managed to get some food in. So that's, that's one thing. I think also I'd found kind of in the lead up that every time I did a routine for the first time on a given day, it was a bit rusty. You know, even if I'd done three cardio exams the day before, a cardio exam the next morning could still be a bit rusty. So actually just um, in the car, just kind of near the centre, actually just talking through every exam routine because there wasn't really there wasn't really kind of space or time to actually practice it just talking through the routine and kind of saying you know can you hold out your hands like this for me and now turn them over you know just mentally going through the steps which is so helpful and kind of visual visualizing that and then do you want me to kind of go and talk a bit about kind of in the exam itself and kind of how I managed the intra exam nerves yeah yeah definitely um so I think just try I mean it's a cliche and I think you know everybody says it but it really is true try to move on mentally after every station you know there's nothing that you can do about a station that's gone badly but if you focus on the, the the you know the encounter in front of you there are so many more marks to be had and I think the way that the exam scored with kind of domains across the exam you know even if actually you had no idea what was going on in the last station yeah you may have dropped some marks on differential diagnosis but actually you know, just think you've actually got, you know, stations still ahead of you or stations that you've done better before um, where, you, you know, you, where you will have been able to get some of the marks for that. I mean, we've talked a bit about managing nerves, but I think prep really helps to manage nerves as well. You know, I, I felt fairly well prepared before the exam. I felt my routines were pretty polished, but I felt a lot of the polish kind of coming off with the nerves in the exam. And there were things, there were bits of exam routines that I skipped um, just because I just completely forgot about them and kind of remembered you know, when I'd left the station that I hadn't done that certain thing. And so, you know, if the better you know those routines, the less likely that kind of thing is to happen. Um, and even if your routine in the exam is nowhere near your kind of usual standard when you're not under any pressure, it may well still tick that satisfactory box. And then, you know, once you've left the centre, you know, re post-exam nerves, um, I think just don't be too harsh on yourself plenty of good people fail paces and there are so many variables lots of which you can't control but I think just remember that kind of satisfactory is what they're looking for it didn't necessarily make me more confident that I passed to remember that actually they're only just looking for satisfactory but it just helped me not to dwell so much on those tiny things and just be a bit more rational think a bit more kind of big picture yeah I mean all of that sounds uh sounds phenomenal Tim and I think just going back to one thing you mentioned about food and drink, I don't think that's to be understated at all. And one thing I would say is that, I mean, I'm sure as a anaesthetist-to-be like me, you're a coffee lover. Too right. But before the exam, it was a complete no-no for me, not least because uh, let's just call it urinary urgency, which is added to by the nerves 
but also just it just gave me the jitters and it and it completely jacked my nerves before the exam so I knew after one of my unsuccessful attempts I thought right that's it I can't have coffee regardless of how much how alert I need to be for this exam I can't have it before so yeah really important It's at this point in the show that I'd usually give a nod over to our sponsors, PassTest.com. But rather than do that, I'm just going to play this little snippet of Tim earlier on the show. I think one other thing probably to mention as well, PassTest. It's just a a resource that we're so lucky to have. You know, I'm not being paid uh, paid anything to say that, but um, I can't recommend it enough. PassTest is essential for your paces revision so to get access just click any of the links in the show notes and so if we move on to the exam itself without giving uh, too much away did you think the exam was a fair exam were there any particular curveballs which came your way which you weren't expecting and I guess focusing on the content of the exam itself, did you think it was? Did you think it was a fair exam, or do you think there were any curveballs which you think uh, caught you off guard? I think the set of cases I got was pretty fair. I think what I was slightly surprised about in there was that hardly anything was barn door in terms of a diagnosis. And actually, there was one patient that I was kind of presenting, and it was only really when I was presenting and I started presenting I didn't have a clue really what I was presenting and I just sort of tacked on a kind of throwaway at the end of my presentation about a particular sign that I found and actually that was really what the examiners then picked me up on and it turned out that that was what the patient had I think so just saying even if you're not quite sure um, about a sign and you know don't make stuff up that's really key but actually you know just just if, if you think, you know, we're, we are taught to present confidently. And if, if you say, you know, if you know that you found something, say it. But you can also, you know, say after you've presented all your confident things, it can be worth just saying. And I believe there was also, you know, a, a mass or whatever, just because then that might also help you in your differentials. Um, and then, you know, you'll present your differentials accordingly. So nothing was hugely barn door, really. But, but I thought it was a pretty fair set. Um, and kind of even, you know, in station five, it was quite nice kind of seeing the brief and saying, well, actually, I think I know how I'm going to tackle this. And even in that quite limited time, just making a few notes was just was quite helpful. Um, so, yeah, I thought I, I, I didn't think there was anything particularly unexpected, but there was there were kind of a few things that I sort of discovered during the exam that I might have liked to have been kind of told beforehand. I think, you know, the examiners want to help you pass. That's really important to remember. And actually our lead examiner came into the candidate's room beforehand and said that. And I think that really helped with the nerves as well. Um, You know, just seeing that you're actually going to see two or three of the examiners before you go into the room was just quite nice. You know, they are human um, and uh, they, they want to help. But they do have this duty to remain completely deadpan. And in one of my stations, they were like particularly so I mean I really thought I kind of left the station and really thought I'd said something that had upset them <laughs> I got absolutely you know even if I gave a smile or whatever kind of while we were chatting I basically got absolutely nothing back and that's just how they chose to be to kind of not give anything away because they've got to be professional with all the candidates 
I guess there's another part of wanting to help you is that they want you to score on every domain. And so what that's going to look like is that actually when you're, you know, in your Viva, they will cut you off and move you on. And so I think say the stuff that you want to say, say those findings that you definitely found, say the things that are the top of your differential diagnosis early, because actually you may not get a chance to continue because they want to move you on to investigations, onto management. So don't take that personally. It's kind of the, you know, it's them wanting to give you the opportunity to score across all domains. I think the other thing was just really time is so tight um, and, you know, you get those routines down. You think, oh, yeah, I can do my neuro in four and a half minutes. Um, but getting it that slick is so important because actually you're, you are going to have to spend time really listening to the murmur to know exactly what you're describing. You're going to have to, if you've got a patient with a peripheral neuropathy, you may have to do the tuning fork everywhere right up to the hip on both legs. And it all takes time um, that you may not have had to spend in your practice. So I think just that that practice is so useful. And um, I had my own watch with me, which actually on station five was invaluable because I started my timer when the bell went. And actually knowing that just a quick look down and thinking, actually, if I'd got to four minutes, I have to start examining the patient and don't carry on talking without examining the patient. And just kind of that, that's just one strategy that you can use, particularly for, you know, station five, which can end up so pushed for time. Yeah, exactly. And things are going to change when the new format of paces comes in and maybe, well, almost certainly that the clinical consultation stations, you won't be so pushed for time, which we've already discussed on the show. It's only going to be a good thing. But obviously, timekeeping is going to be really important. And maybe that might be applicable in the communication stations going forward, because you're not going to have as much time uh, to maybe discuss things in as much depth as uh, we've been used to in the previous comms stations. And the other thing I should just throw in as well, I'd say, is regarding uh, particularly the neurology examination is that it's a long examination anyway. And then when you throw in Uh, additional signs particularly I would say sensory signs because you're testing multiple domains of sensation it may end up that you have to quite precisely and comprehensively assess sensation in several domains which can take in clinical practice can take six minutes in its own right so all I'd say is if you're getting to that point in the examination do as much as is possible for you to be able to reliably report to the examiner that you found some sensory deficits and if you run out of time just be sure to mention the fact that you would go back complete the examination with the relevant domains it, it's not a, an 100 percent fail if you don't manage to test proprioception for example if you've done soft touch and pinprick sensation that might be enough for you to be able to tell the examiner this person has evidence of a glove and stocking distribution peripheral neuropathy I would go back and test vibration sense and proprioception. And it's as simple as that. I think that's such an important point, Sam. I mean, I think I, you know, I should flag that um, I didn't finish my neuro exam and that was, it was lower limb and I was told not to assess gait and I still didn't finish the exam. I think I'd, I think proprioception being my last thing and I'd kind of started to work up and actually, you know, it was fine. I think the examiners were, were, were happy that kind of, I'd clearly begun to show that there was a deficit. And so even if you don't finish your exam, don't worry and don't kind of write that off. Um, because yeah, exactly. They're looking for that demonstration that you've kind of, that you are assessing and that you found those deficits. And if you haven't in the time perfectly characterized them, that could well be okay. 
Fantastic. Tim, you obviously you emailed into the show. That's the reason why we've uh, got you on. And so we can assume the uh, podcast served its purpose for you, accompanying you on your uh, commute. But what other preparation advice in, in more general terms would you like to pass on to the listeners? What would you have wanted to know at the start of your exam that would, would have put you in good stead uh, when you came to sit? I think um, one of the best pieces of advice I had from a consultant was, um, you know, lots of good people fail paces and very occasionally bad people pass as well. I think that just took the pressure off knowing that actually there are a lot of variables outside your control. You know, if, if, it, if it didn't go to plan, I've, I've done what I can. Sometimes there will just be factors outside your control that affect the outcome. And so your, your prep is there to control the variables that you can control. And I think it just it just kind of comes down to that prep being a lot of practice with, you know, an appropriate for you amount of bookwork and theory learning and, and past tests and flashcards and however else you work. To try to make every encounter in hospital a paces practice encounter. So, you know, think about if it's ambulatory care, actually, can I set my watch for, you know, eight minutes and try to assess this patient's chest pain in eight minutes as a station five style? And obviously you might have to come back and just finish the last couple of minutes, a few extra things, but, you know, it still gives you the practice and, you know, history taking, actually, can I set a stopwatch for 14 minutes or I guess I think it's 10 in the new format, isn't it? And just making sure that I can actually give that structured history in that time. Um, and then just just muscle memory kind of, I tried to make sure that I was doing every, apart from off days, I was trying to make sure that I was doing every exam routine every day in the kind of three or four weeks leading up to the exam, just so that it was really kind of, you know, under the hands. I think another thing as well is just remember the domains that they're actually marking you on. So say differential diagnosis is one so it's not it's it's not diagnosis so it's about considering the correct diagnosis and there's you know there's there's definitely one station in my exam where I still don't have a clue what the patient had but I must have just been able to you know mention along with the several things that it wasn't I must have mentioned you know the, the correct diagnosis under my differential and that's what the points are for and then just, you know, sensible investigations and management to kind of narrow them down. But I think, yeah, just in terms of kind of the holistic approach, you know, just keep your life balanced, take some rest days and, you know, don't completely cancel your whole social calendar. You know, had a lovely Burns night dinner about 10 days before my exam with some friends. And, you know, that was great. Just a chance to kind of forget about the exam for a bit. And it just it will just really, really help your sanity um, in in the build up. Um, to the exam okay well i think when we're pretty much nearly at the end of our discussion tim but have you got any final thoughts closing thoughts before uh, before we wrap up the, this episode of the podcast um i guess a couple of things that i've mentioned really just to reiterate i think you know past test is so so helpful um and i i honestly don't think i could have um i don't think i could have passed the exam without it um so that's a real like that was just essential for my prep um, and then I kind of mentioned in passing as well, the, the PACES website, um, uh, you know, the official MRCP website, but there's just some absolute gold on there in terms of the, the practice scenarios for, um, for stations two, four and five. Um, and, you know, again, just actually being able to revise those with somebody else, um, you know, there are candidate briefs. 
and sort of patient briefs for all of those. And there are so, so many, like way more than I think you'd be used to expecting from an exam body, you know, providing um, examples. Normally there's kind of only one or two and that was why I didn't look at them until about 10 days out from the exam. But actually there were so many that I didn't didn't even really scratch the surface of them. Um, and so I'd really encourage, um, you know, I'd really encourage people to get into having a look at them like early in the prep. Yeah, fantastic. And the official website is mrcpuk.org and you can find everything on there. You can find the exam dates uh, for wherever you're listening around the world. But the critical the critical tab you need to find is sample scenarios. And uh, as Tim said, there's scenarios for in its current format, they've got the Station 2, they've got Station 4, the, the Communication and Ethics, and Station 5 scenarios as well. And I've no doubt that before the new format comes in, they'll be providing uh, more examples which maybe fit the timings of the new format slightly better than the current format. But I think that is just about all the time we have for this week's episode, and we are in huge debt to Dr. Tim Nye for joining us on the show, talking about how he overcame his obstacles in preparing for paces and ultimately led to his success in the exam. So Tim, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks, Sam. Um, Yeah, thanks so much to you as well, just I guess for your role in kind of helping me turn um, the A14 drudge into a a useful time for my paces prep. And um, yeah, just keep, you know, doing what you're doing and helping out, um, you know, other people in a similar position in future. Thank you, Tim. That's very kind of you to say. And actually, when I first conceived the idea of this podcast, I was doing something very similar, driving up and down the M5 for an hour every uh, single day, trying to find a good use of that time. So it's great to hear that you, as well as uh, many listeners, are are benefiting from that. I'm really grateful for your support. And listeners, that is the end of another show. Please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to the podcast or leave a five star review wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you, just as Tim got in touch after he finished his exam. So please do get in touch and uh, you can do that through our Twitter, which is at Prepaces Podcast or the website prepacespodcast.com. Or if, like Tim, you want to go above and beyond directly support the show you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.